You're listening to episode 179 of the Pastor Writer Podcast, conversations on reading, writing, and the Christian life. I'm your host, Chase Replogle. In today's episode, I had the privilege of having Chris Martin back on the podcast for a second time to talk about his new book, Terms of Service. Chris has been working in the area of social media, particularly within publishing and Christian publishing ministries for several years now. And his new book has a lot of insights about how as believers we should be thinking about our social media use. It's a balanced approach. He uses social media, teaches people how to use social media. But he also has some real concerns about the way social media is impacting us as individuals, impacting our children and families, and also impacting the churches that we pastor. He has a really helpful take on how social media is not neutral, that the system itself, the algorithms, the way it's designed is flawed like the humans who designed them. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I hope it's practical. It helps you think more deeply about your own social media use. As always, thanks for listening. Well, I'm joined on the podcast today by Chris Martin. Chris is a content marketing editor at Moody Publishers, and he's also a social media marketing and communications consultant. He writes regularly in his newsletter, Terms of Service, which also happens to be the title of a new book that he has out with B&H. It's a book I got a chance to look at early. I've really, really enjoyed it. It's helpful. I think it's going to be an important conversation, and I'll plug it at the end as well, too. But his uh, newsletter, Terms of Service, is really just a must for anybody who's trying to think about social media, think about how to make good choices themselves, raise kids that make good choices, pastor in a place where people are using social media for all sorts of things. Uh, Chris and his wife and daughter live uh, just outside of Nashville, and that's where all the cool kids hang out these days. Chris, it is really a privilege and honor to have you back for a second time on the podcast. Man, I'm so glad to be back here. And yeah, I know all the cool kids hang out around here because they bully me all the time. Uh, <laughs> You're no, not I'm one joking. of them, huh? Yeah. No, I'm not one of them, I guess is what I mean to say. Yeah, yeah. They're all they're all pr- more likely hanging out in Nashville proper. I'm down here in a random college town suburb, just kind of kind of trying to stay out of the way. But yeah, thanks for being uh thanks for asking me to come back. And it's been uh it's been fun chatting even in our pre-show discussion. So good to be here. Yeah, well, I want to hear a little bit just to set it up. You've been doing a lot of work around social media as a consultant, a manager. You do it in publishing. Um, how did that path come about for you? What What was the entry point into it? I mean, obviously, you and I are around the same age. We weren't growing up saying someday I want to work in social media. It wasn't a thing. So how did you uh, How did you find your way into the work? Yeah, um, without giving like whole life story, it does start sort of early. Um, so I grew up was born in 1990 grew up in the 90s like was hanging out and like my dad worked for ibm so you know ibm was as much a household name as apple or facebook is today back in the 90s you know they were a lot of people were going to their computer stores and buying an ibm machine to hop to their a home computer for the first time um and so he worked for big and called back then um, and he worked from home uh, which was super rare back in the 90s uh, in fact, a, a local newspaper did a story on on him, but then kind of he was just more the local hook for a more broad phenomenon of uh, people working from home in the '90s. Uh, which it was is just funny to go back and read that article. We have like a snippet of it from from back then, and given our current context, it's funny to go back and read. But so he worked from IBM my entire life, kind of until I was a senior in high school. Um, and so I grew up around computers and around the internet super early. Like I was on the internet earlier, like in first grade before most of my peers were, um, which obviously had its good and its good and bad sides, uh, as I'm sure you can imagine. And so grew up on the internet, was just always really interested. I was very much an early adopter of all things internet growing up. So I was on the internet super early. I was like my first, first among my friends on like AOL instant messenger in elementary school. I was first among my friends to be like playing around on MySpace and trying to figure out what that was. Um, I was always still am, but always as a young kid, super into like multiplayer video games on, on the internet and just very, just always interested in socializing with people around the world through the internet. Um, Got into high school. I started writing a blog pretty regularly with some other high schoolers who are Christians in my city. We wrote like kind of a collaborative blog, like something like a TGC or whatever, but, but for high schoolers and who are Christians in my city growing up. And that led to getting a scholarship to a private Christian school in Indiana called Taylor university, which is where I went to school when I, where I went to college um, at Taylor 
uh, I was planning on being an English educator. I was an English education major to start planning on teaching high school English because I really like teaching or like, yeah, I'd done a lot of tutoring and mentoring and that kind of thing. And I love writing and love reading. So I was like, hey, I'll teach people how to read and write. And so that was my kind of plan. Um, eventually, at the end of my freshman year, changed to a Bible major because I found I really liked reading theology a lot more than I liked reading 18th century British poetry or whatever. Um, and uh, it was around that time that I started working in social media professionally. So I was running my own blog, obviously, like I did that through high school and then even into college. Um, I was maintaining a robust social media presence on multiple platforms for myself, which in college, you know, was just a bunch of random stuff that I'm embarrassed to go back and read today. Um, but I was super active on social and a few of my peers at college recognized that. And one of them actually had like a marketing company that he started. Uh, and his dad had had a bunch of connections at these big corporations and, um, his dad would just kind of like be helping like win some accounts, I guess you could say. And the student, uh, would hire college students to do a bunch of like super rote, like mundane marketing tasks. Because, you know, if you were like one of our clients was like fellows, like the office supply company. Um, and if you're fellows and you want to have some SEO some search engine optimization work done or some social media management work done, um, why not contract with this marketing firm supplied by a bunch of college students who are working for 10 bucks an hour instead of hiring somebody out of college who's going to work for at least two and a half times that or whatever back back in 2010. Um, and so I was working like out of my dorm room as a sophomore, junior in college, writing like 15, 20 blogs a week for like five different companies just around like mainly for like SEO purposes, just to help them pop up in Google, as well as doing some social media management for them. And so it was for me, man, it was great. It was better than other jobs I could work on campus. I got to like watch Netflix or watch football while writing these blogs or managing social media. Uh, and that was my first time really doing that sort of thing professionally, not just for myself. Um, did that through some summers as well as while I was being a student. Actually became like head of content at that company when I was a senior in college, which lasted for like, it was my first salary job and I hadn't even graduated yet, which was just kind of weird because I was a minister. I was like a Bible major. So I was afraid of like getting a job when I was graduating. Um, and uh, so it was weird to like have this job before I even graduated, but I only did that for like six months before I got married. And then uh, got married to my wife, Susie, like two weeks after graduation, we were trying to figure out where I was going to go to seminary. Eventually, a guy named Ed Stetzer tweeted out that he needed a social media manager, which I'd followed his Twitter and his blog throughout college um, and was like, hey, I, I meet these criteria he has on this job description. He's probably not trying to hire a 22-year-old who just graduated from college, uh, but I, I can manage social media. I can manage blog. I can write pretty well. I can edit. So I submitted an application to run Ed Stetzer's blog, which I was confused because his blog was at Christianity Today. But the application was through Lifeway Christian Resources, which I'd never really even heard of before. Um, and so I was like, well, I'm just going to apply. There's a Southern Extension campus in Nashville. So like I could, I'm already been accepted to Southern Seminary. Maybe I could just like, you know, go to the Extension campus in Nashville and work at Lifeway in Nashville. So I applied without even telling my wife, which was a mistake, but <laughs> I was only a month into marriage. So we've since, for, she's since forgiven me for that. Um, but uh, they got, they responded to my job application like immediately. And that's when I was like, uh Oh, I got to tell Susie. Cause I just didn't think I had a shot at getting this job. Um, so I told my wife and uh, she was mad, but I interviewed and, um, moved down to Nashville in September of 2013 and, uh, actually ended up doing seminary through Southeastern Baptist theological seminary, uh, partially online and partially at an extension campus. And so, um, started at Lifeway in 2013, running Stetzer's blog at Christianity today and helping run his social media accounts as well as a couple other executives at Lifeway who had social media presences at that time, kind of as a personal marketing tool, I guess you could say for Lifeway and did that for a number of years and um, eventually moved into broader social media leadership roles at Lifeway. When I left Lifeway in 2020, I had for a couple of years been the head of social media at Lifeway. So I was overseeing roughly 60 social media managers who had their hands in about 270 social media accounts. So I did that for a couple of years and for a whole host of reasons that was just super draining. 
um, as I'm sure you can imagine. So I was like, you know, I want to move on to something that's a little bit more offline. And, and I have interest in that and have a lot of experience there. So I think I should still use those gifts, but I'd prefer not to wake up every day with the job of managing the marketing and PR headaches that come with social media management. So I've since moved on, but that's kind of, that's kind of how I got to where I was as far as professional stuff is concerned. Well, it's really interesting because um, you bring into the book both sort of theological education, obviously experience within the church, resourcing of the church, but then you, like you said, have had hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of social media accounts every day demanding content from you and your team. And so I, the book, it's both practical, but it's also theological. One of the things you make a point of pretty early in the book, um, terms of service, you specifically refer to it as the social internet instead of social media. I know social media is by far the more common uh, phrase. Why social internet for you? There are two primary reasons I can think of. One of them is pretty explicitly stated in the book, and one of them isn't, mainly because I came across the second reason after the book was already submitted for publication. But um, the first is uh, really, I want us a main point of the, both the book terms of service and my broader writing is I want people to have a bigger view of social media as we understand it. I want to broaden our understanding and help us to realize that it's a lot more than funny cat videos and connecting with friends or family across the country. Um, I think one of the biggest problems we have societally with social media is that we treat it so loosely and like it's child's play or like it's a game. Like it's like teeny bopper nonsense. Like, Oh, what are their kids doing on social media these days? Or, Oh, what, what's going viral today? And I'm like, you realize entire governments have been overthrown by some of these platforms. Um, and so I just think, I think it's an incredibly weighty matter, social media and calling it social media and kind of viewing it as like, funny stuff or what's going viral today, as we often think of it, minimizes the understanding that we ought to have of it. So I kind of want to broaden our understanding. And and the the other reason, which kind of goes hand in hand with this, but I didn't put it quite this way in the book, is there are differences between a technology and a medium. So Postman does a really good job of, Neil Postman does a really good job of explaining the difference between a technology and a medium. Um. A technology very simply is like the electronics, like the actual apparatus that we think of when we think of a technology. It's the electronics, the ones and zeros. It's the television. It's the literal cables that run on the ocean floor that connect the internet together, right? It's the power stations that keep these things going. Like these are the pieces of technology. Um, The media is the culture that we create using a particular piece of technology. So thinking of the television, uh, the television is a technology and that sitcom you like to watch or the news, the evening news program or the reality TV show, that is the media, that is culture being created with the the technology. And so social internet and social media, social media is obviously the media component. It's the way we use the technology of the internet to create culture. It's that it's it's largely the content that fills our feeds, right? It's the uh, the that funny cat video or that enraging blog post from that person. It's it's all of the stuff we consume, and even the relationships we have. The social internet, uh, getting more specific than just the entire internet is social, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, the social internet is like the ones and zeros, the algorithms that decide which funny cat video or enraging article that you, that appears at the top of your Facebook feed or your Twitter timeline. Um, and and so I think a lot of us, when we think about social media, we get these app logos in our head, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever else. Uh, or we think of the content we consume. We think of the cat video. We think of the enraging article or whatever. Um I am interested in getting us to think beyond the content. What I should or shouldn't watch. So those are important conversations to have. I just think they've been had a lot. Um, I think it's important for us to think what is important, what is significant about how Twitter works, about how Facebook works, and how is it causing me to think about myself or my life or my faith or my friends differently. Um, like the, the, I, I'm of the firm belief that 
that it isn't just the media that's changing us, like the content we consume, but that it's the actual technology that kind of undergirds the media, uh, the ones and zeros of the algorithms that recommend us content that deliver us deeper into, into our desires rather than delivering us from our desires, which as Christians, we should be quite concerned about. I think that these technologies shape us even more than the actual content that lives on top of them. Uh, and, and generally speaking, I think that when we think of social media, we think of those apps that I mentioned, we think of these logos, but like Amazon book reviews are social media. Uh, Google search results are social media. Uh, these are things, pieces of content, pieces of communication created by humans that may not live on the traditional apps that we think of, but they're still a means of communication between people across the internet. So I just, I just think we should have a broader view and a deeper view of what the social internet is. And I think we have to maybe start changing some of our terminology in order to do that. This idea of looking beneath the surface or looking deeper into things comes through really clear in the book. And the first section of the book, you're dealing with how the social internet works. That's a big topic. We'll save it for the whole book. But are there some a few examples you like to give to help people who maybe really haven't dug into the technology side of it, the algorithm side, uh, to, to help bring some clarity around how things are happening, how they're working beneath the surface that you you may not immediately see when you imagine somebody posts content. I look at the content that there's actually more going on. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that, uh, again, there's an entire chapter. In fact, you could say the whole first part of the book is dedicated to this question. So there's so much we could talk about. But I think one of the most overlooked factors is the quote-unquote algorithm. There is not just one algorithm, of course, but there are different algorithms for every social media platform that we may engage um, and I think a lot of people simply don't understand because they, why would they? Because most people don't think about these things as deeply as I do or other people who write on these things. And it's somewhat understandable. We can't think deeply about everything. However, I do think we should think more deeply about these technologies that we're so willingly giving such intimate access to our lives and our brains. Um, but I think how the social internet works uh, really comes down to the, very complex and very secretive mathematical equations that decide what we see and what we don't. So without getting too technical, because, and I'm not a math guy, let me be clear. Like I, I once dreamed of doing a computer science degree, but the Lord steered me away from it probably out of his mercy more than anything. But um, I, I'm not a math guy, but I have done enough digging into how these algorithms work to know that these are recommendation engines is what they're often called kind of alternatively that these are complex mathematical equations that are meant to deliver us the content that we are most likely to engage with in some way in order to spend as much time on these social media platforms as possible so we have to remember and i i use this illustration not this illustration this line of thinking a little bit in the in the book and i think it's worth visiting here Take Facebook as an example. I don't. Some people get mad at me for picking on Facebook, but I'm like, look, they're the biggest one out there. Everybody uses them. And frankly, they're the most egregious on violating a lot of our personal identity, privacy, whatever you want to call it. Um, take Facebook. Uh, Facebook exists to make money. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not here to bash them making money. Not a problem. Facebook exists to make money. Facebook doesn't care how you and I feel. Um, some people wrongly say Facebook just wants to make you happy. Well, maybe, but frankly, Facebook just wants to make us feel something because Facebook exists to make money. The way they make the most money is by keeping users on the platform for as long as possible because that's how their ads are so valuable. Uh, and when people are on the platform longer, they share more personal information, which again, makes ads more valuable. Um, and what happens, the way Facebook keeps us on their platform for as long as possible, and you could throw Instagram in here too because Meta owns Facebook, Instagram, um, is they deliver us content that they find to will be most interesting and engaging to us. Now, those are neutral words, interesting and engaging, and that's intentional because like I said before, Facebook is not interested in how we feel, meaning they don't really care if we're happy or mad or sad or surprised or afraid or excited. 
Facebook is most interested in delivering us content that makes us feel something that drives us to an action. That's often called in social media parlance, uh, marketing especially, engagement. So this could be clicking like, could be reacting with a frowny face. It could be commenting. It could be sharing. It could be clicking play or clicking on the sound on a video whose sound is muted or whose video is paused. It could be like Facebook knows, for instance, when you're on the app, when you stop scrolling for three seconds, that is called an engagement because in their mind, you're, you have stopped to, you, you know, you could have stopped because your daughter called you needed to turn your head and talk to her. But in Facebook's mind, if you stop scrolling over a piece of content, that means that you're interested in it in some way. Now, you could have stopped scrolling or you could have commented because you were absolutely furious about what you're seeing or what you're reading. Um, but you know what it made you do is it made you stop and it made you think or act in some way. And when, when Facebook can capture that about us, then they know what, go, what happens is those are data points that are fed into that mathematical equation, that algorithm. And those data points, those variables determine then the next time we open the Facebook app, what we see. So let's say you saw maybe you're very, you're, uh, very pro-life and you talk about that very frequently on Facebook. You post about it, you share articles about protecting life in the womb, yada, yada, yada. Well, Facebook, frankly, is just as likely to deliver you an article via an ad or via one of your friends who maybe you're not really friends with anymore, but they posted about it. Facebook is just as likely to deliver you an, a pro-choice piece of content as they are a pro-life piece of content because the algorithm knows that you will respond to the pro-choice piece of content with as much, if not more, fervor and interest as if you were responding to a pro-life piece of content. Because again, Facebook is not interested in making you or I happy, but interested in keeping you engaged and keeping you active, even if that means making you mad. And in fact, this is where I'll, I'll land it here. Facebook's own data back in 2018, they shelved this and it was not discovered until 2020 by the Wall Street Journal. Um, I might have those dates wrong, but it, there was a couple year period between when Facebook, Facebook discovered this and the Wall Street Journal uncovered it through the leaking of some papers um, that Facebook's own research has discovered that content that makes users angry or upset delivers higher engagement and higher long, longer time on platform. So Facebook knows and frankly is incentivized to infuriate users in order to increase engagement time and increase time on platform, uh, which then helps revenue and helps ad sales, et cetera. Um, and, and when they saw this data and this research, they for a long time did not act on it out of fear of hindering revenue and, and results. So this is what, this is the kind of stuff like when I hear how does the social internet work, that's one prime example of how these feeds and these algorithms can affect us without even taking into consider, like I talked very little about the actual content we see um, and talk more about how these systems, how these architectures work. And a lot of us simply don't like, we see content that makes us mad and we just respond in anger rather than recognizing, wait a second, I know what's going on here. It's, it's kind of like a fish seeing a hook in the water. We just take the bait instead of maybe having the eye to look past the bait to the actual hook. Yeah, it's really interesting. I uh, I have those experiences too, and that even in this past couple of weeks, I started getting uh, ads that were very unusual for what I would see on Facebook, and I was thinking this this is never like this kind of ad or this kind of content has never showed up on my Facebook before. And I happen to to know that because I do a little bit of paid advertising for some of my writing as well too. That a lot of the targeting had been changed with Facebook. I was probably getting dumped into. Yes. I was probably getting dumped more into the uh, male thirty something general category than some of the specific. Tar- targeting tools that were being used for ads before. But even that concept of the things I'm seeing are being controlled by marketers, by algorithms, by there, it is a lot more than just the piece of content that appears on the screen. You write at the end of the book, which in many ways I think is, is like the most important point of what you say. You say that the social internet is not a neutral tool. It's not just a place for the free exchanging of ideas. It's not just a place where, hey, Somebody posted that. It may have been content I didn't like, but that's on the person who posted it. That it's not just a neutral. And I think I've slipped into this before thinking like, well, social media is exposing the worst of us because that's human nature that's getting exposed. But you think there's actually something 
not neutral, but actually negative about the way the tool itself works, the technology itself. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's um, social media is not a neutral tool. First and foremost, I, I think this is an easy case to make among Christians. And I let me be clear, like I, I wrote both terms of service, the book, and I try to write pretty regularly through my newsletter of the same name in such a way that Christians and non-Christians alike may be helped by it. Um, and so I, I never like to assume a Christian audience, just let me be clear. But among Christians, it should be easy for us to recognize why social media is not a neutral tool because social media was not like some discovery we made in nature where it's like, oh, wow, look at this new technology. Isn't it amazing? It's not tainted by anything. It's like social media is these platforms are made by sinful people. Um, like there, there is bias baked into these, like baked into these platforms. And a lot of people like to think like, like social media companies are made up of a bunch of liberal 22 year olds who hate conservatives. And like, maybe that could have been true in like 2007 or eight or something like when everything was getting started and everybody was like 22 out in Silicon Valley, it felt like, but like, that's not definitely not the case today. In fact, like a lot of these platforms have very conservative interests just in terms of like protecting their own like potential monopolies and, and um, anyway, they, they have their values maybe have changed. And so that, that conversation of, of are they like politically biased is a bit dated at this point, frankly, but yeah, yeah. These, these platforms are not, are not neutral tools because they're, they're designed. Like I described with that, that research that the wall street journal uncovered um, they're designed for engagement and not for civility or like you said, the free exchange of ideas. Um, like when you see your Facebook newsfeed, you're not seeing the most recent content. You're seeing what the Facebook algorithms have decided you probably want out of a pool of content from the last, the last few days. Um, and social media is financially fueled by the time that users spend on their platform. So I think it's, it's kind of like, um, you've been given a hammer. Like if we want to use the tool kind of image, you've been given a hammer, but the hammer uh, the mallet is made of glass and the claw is extra sharp. Um, and it's like uh, Facebook has said, you know, if, if Facebook were the hammer, like, Hey, you, uh, the more stuff you destroy, the more points you get. And and it's like the, the easy, like the best way to get a lot of engagement, the best way to get a lot of followers on not just Facebook, Twitter, frankly, or any of these platforms is to cause a ruckus. Um, and I think that one of the, one of the most important things we have to have in our mind as we use social media is that we, we have to often use these platforms in ways they were not meant to be used. Like we have to intentionally kind of swim against the flow of negativity that often, because if you just think about it again, part of it is human nature. Um, These algorithms are designed to float to the top, the most engaged content and the most engaged content is often the most negative. And so negativity snowballs into more negativity. And it's, it's, um, it's just kind of a never ending cycle of, of doom as it's often called like doom scrolling and, and, and just being depressed all the time looking at this stuff. But the other, the other reason I think that we need to be careful to say it's neutral or, or like I've often heard, like, it's just like the latest iteration of TV or radio. It's like social media is so much faster. Like I, I have something I've written. I tweeted about this one time and it got a lot of pushback and I've written a longer newsletter about it. That's coming out later. Um, but like social media is by far more powerful than the printing press. And it's not even close. Um, and that's kind of a controversial opinion. And like, I'm a books guy. Like I work for a publisher for goodness sakes. Like I love books and I think books are more valuable than social media. Uh, but but social media is like the printing press literally at the speed of light. I mean, like we're communicating through fiber optic cables here. Um, and if you, if you think like, it's like saying a horse is better than a jet engine. It's like, no man, like the jet engine is so much more powerful. Um, and so I think we, we should be aware too, that social media is just incredibly powerful and the, the lack of neutrality, the lack of, you know, yeah, it's just not this free plane where we share ideas and exchange them, but, there's a sort of hierarchy in terms of that, which gets the most engagement is the most valuable and will be seen by the most eyes. And this is where human nature comes in. Unfortunately, that which gets the most engagement is often not that which should get the most engagement, which means we often just 
having a lot more negative engagements than maybe we feel like we want to. Uh, but that's what the algorithms think we want, or at least think will keep us on the platform the most. And this goes back to my first thought at the beginning of the last point, which was, again, these platforms are most interested in keeping us, I, I often say, enslaved to the, to the platforms. Um, they want us to keep tapping and swiping and scrolling more than they want us to feel a certain way. And that's what we have. Like we, we tend to get romantic about a lot of these platforms. Like, Oh, I love Twitter. I love Facebook or I love Instagram, but it's like, they don't love you. And you got to know that like, they don't have your best interest at heart. Um, we are users to them. We are not customers. And I think that's an important distinction to keep in mind. I do want to ask a question about the consequences. I mean, certainly, I think the consequences of social media use are seem to be more discussed within culture. But I still think for a lot of people, maybe they don't realize how severe some of these consequences can be. You actually, towards the end of the book, also make some predictions. And I sort of, as I was reading the book, imagining it was going to be the side-by-side, like, here's the predictions of bad, here's some predictions of good. It was really just the bad predictions that you see a continual increase in mental health issues related to social media use. You see continued, if not worsened, polarization around social media use. And you also think that it will continue, as I think we're seeing right now in Europe, but in, in larger ways contribute to war and conflict within uh, the, the real world as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't have super optimistic view of the future of social media. Um, I do have some optimism that maybe I can share later if you want to end on a happier note, but yeah, um, uh, yeah it's, it's uh, I, so I'm very careful in all of these conversations and I haven't said it yet with you. So I should say it here. I'm very careful not to outright say social media is all bad all the time. It is not. Um, I, I love social media, which is kind of weird to say, maybe given everything I just described, like I have met many wonderful people through social media, yourself included. I've uh, maintained relationships with people who have moved far away through social media. Um, I've learned so many things through social media. I keep up with various interests through the people I follow on different platforms. Um, it has been largely my job, you know, it's provided a career for a number of years for me. Um, and so I, I think there's real value. And I think there are ways that it can be used wisely. My concern is, and the reason I talk so negatively about it is a, I don't think anybody needs to be told what the positives of social media are. I think any of us who use it with any regularity are aware of the positives. That's why we use it. Um, like we don't need to be told why it's good. Um, I think a lot of us have our own personal reasons for why we think it's good or bad. Um, but we don't need to be reminded or convinced of them. However, I think a lot of us have just joined and use social media platforms because they're there and because other people are, and we haven't at all taken stock of the negative side effects. Um, and we, we wonder like, why do I feel miserable when I scroll on Instagram and yet we still continue to do it? And we're like, I just can't stop myself. I mean, if I'm not like a psychologist and I'm very careful to say that, but like addiction is very prevalent when it comes to social media um, and very common. Like people, a lot of people are addicted to social media. And some people have asked me like, hey, how do you know that? And like, well, again, I'm not a psychologist. However, I think a pretty good indication is if you find yourself hating using something or feeling worse when you use something, but not being able to stop yourself. And I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had with people I know personally or others who have engaged with my work on the internet who have said, man, I hate social media, but I can't stop using it. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds like classic addiction. You know, you could say that about so many things. Um, and so I think the future of social media is somewhat bleak because I think we haven't like so many of us are just not interested in talking about the negative side effects. Like we don't pay attention or we explain away mental health statistics that clearly show a severe declination of mental health as social media use skyrockets at the same time. Mental health data, though I'm not a psychologist or even researcher of these things normally is kind of, I've learned hard to pin down because there are just so many factors that can contribute to mental health. Uh, wellness. And uh, so it's hard to make draw any causative relationships between things. But Jonathan Haidt, uh, so, who is a social psychologist, has done a tremendous job in some of his work explaining how social media use and particularly 
uh, smartphone use, kind of both. Um, he he kind of lumps them together sometimes. Um, has shown a serious decline in mental health, especially among young girls who often resolve conflict through a lot of the means of socialization that social media um, exacerbates and, and makes worse. Um, so all that's to say, yeah, my, my outlook is not very good. And, and uh, mainly it's because I think a lot of us broadly don't want to, or, or haven't reckoned with how these things negatively affect us. And we just are kind of, maybe ignoring these negative effects while we just try to feel as good as we possibly can while using them. Yeah. Mental health, um, war, which like I say in the book, like this might sound drastic, but I do think social media will lead to or directly cause a massive war or conflict in some way. And, uh, I think, yeah, like you said, like this is playing out a little bit with the Ukrainian, conflict going on where Russia has invaded Ukraine. And while social media did not kick off that war by any means, uh, it has definitely played a central role in it. Uh, and especially just in the propaganda around it. Um, at the same time, uh, social media has led to war already. Um, the Arab spring was a direct result of social media, uh, and, and Twitter in specific. So I, I just think that there's not a lot to be super excited about regarding the future of social media um, because I think our worst tendencies have not improved in the last five to 10 years. And in, if anything, they've only gotten worse. And I just lack the uh, hope or, or like evidence that those negative tendencies are going to turn themselves around in any way. I don't know if that makes sense. I'm kind of, I'm kind of rambling here, but I think you know what I mean, maybe. Yeah, I do. Um, I want to get a question for pastors as well. I'm a pastor myself. Uh, a lot of pastors listen to the podcast. I read one of your pieces uh, one in your newsletter here. It's been a while back, but you were discussing um, the impact of social media within a local congregation. And you had a line in there. You said the internet influences people more than pastors do. And you were offering this as a, a sort of uh, a sober word to pastors about how much social media impacts the people in the pews around them. As a pastor, I mean, do you have advice for how pastors should be thinking, how they should be uh, using or not using or describing, discussing social media within a, a context of a church, a congregation? It's obviously hard to say. You know, I, I did make that generalization in that piece that the internet influences people more than pastors do. Obviously, struck, this isn't the case it, everywhere. It struck me as true, though, even as a pastor myself. Yeah. That you're, even yeah. in your pastoral work, you know you're always sort of Somewhere there in the margins, you're, you know, you're interacting with things that people are interacting with every day outside of church all yeah. the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and frankly, this just comes down to time, right? It's, it's really like the classic problem that pastors complained about in the late 90s and early 2000s with cable news, except it's just worse. Like it's like exponentially worse where pastors, you know, I growing up, I would hear pastors say, like, I just can't can't compete with people who are discipled by cable news all, you know, for, for 40 hours a week. And then they come hear me preach one, one hour a week. How am I supposed to compete with that? And pastors are feeling very much the same way now, but social media, you know, it's like social media, 90 hours a week instead of cable news, 40 hours a week. And, and we're carrying around uh, the title of my next book, which I'm not here to talk about, but it's relevant to your question is tentatively titled though. I think it will stick called uh, the wolves in their pockets, uh, which really gets at this idea that, how do you pastor when all of your sheep are carrying wolves around in their pockets? And I think that, um, yeah, pastors should come to the realization that TikTok influencers, Instagram influencers, talking heads on Facebook or Twitter are influencing their people more than they are. I think recognizing that first and just like um, humbly like admitting that is the first big step. Uh, and then I think it comes down to you, you know, you're often told not to fight fire with fire. But I really do think that one of the best ways pastors fight back against this uh, social media influencing their people more than they do is by investing more time. And I don't mean you get people inside the walls of your church more hours a week. Like, I don't think you fight this with three times the amount of programming you have. But I do think it looks like making sure your people are connecting in a community group of some kind throughout the week, making sure you have parishioner, like you have people in your church 
in your congregation meeting for coffee together once or twice a week and like just having people like I think the way you combat the siren song of community on social media that often ends up ringing hollow but can look really appealing to the average person for a while. I think the way pastors combat that is by trying as best as they can to create a much more robust culture of embodied community in the local church that, that, and that requires like an investment of time, not just from the pastor where the pastor has to hang out with everybody all the time, but where a culture of community is created where it's not like you just show up to church on Sunday and then leave or even show up to church on Sunday, Wednesday, and then leave and go home. But like you have people in each other's lives almost every day of the week. However, that can happen not as a sort of event, not as we're going to do this ministry function on Saturday mornings, but like, yeah, we have friends over on Saturday night every week, or we have, uh, we watch our friends, kids every other Sunday night so that they can go out on a date night and then they do the same for us or just, you know what I'm saying? I, th- I think that's the, I mean, I wrote an entire book on how pastors can try to influence their people more than social media. And that will come out later. But, um, but if I could just try to whittle that down to one idea, it's really that pastors have to figure out a way for the local church to um, melt into the lives of their people far beyond whatever one or two events you might ask people to be showing up to throughout the, throughout the week. Um, And then obviously like encouraging social media literacy or, or media literacy period or, and, and encouraging screen time limits, all of that stuff is, is helpful as well. Um, But I think, it's you're better off fighting it with like a positive embodied community rather than just trying to limit people's screen time. If that makes sense. Yeah. I've spent a lot of time, especially as I've been writing about men's issues within the church. And I've got a lot of young men in my congregation um, trying to just be aware of what they're listening to the conversations. I've actually got a note in my notes app. I've got a list of things that I know the men in my church are thinking and listening and reading about online that the church has probably never talked about. And it doesn't mean that I like kick off a series. It doesn't mean that I like drop references and sermons. It's nothing like that. It's just, you know, when I am with the men in my congregation, like these conversations come up and I'm, I can integrate that online experience with an actual conversation with the pastor because I'm aware of it. That's been really helpful navigating some of this too, that there's space to be able to talk about the things that they're reading, listening, seeing online. Uh, it's not a totally different thing when they show up at church or we grab lunch or coffee. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do this. Like I've worked in student ministry for not worked in, I, I have been on staff at my church doing student ministry for a few years. Not, not right now, but recently. Um, I, but I've, I've served in student ministry since I was a high schooler. And so um, this is something I like what you just described is something I've tried to do with students for over a decade. Um, like I really try to, as I'm hanging out and talking with students and it helps that I'm interested in a lot of things they are too. Like I, I like video games and I like YouTube culture and I like keeping track of, um, who the most popular influencers are, just because a lot of that is obviously relevant to my interest in social media um, and how the internet more broadly is used to create culture. Um, but yeah, like studying your congregation and figuring out, like you may be pastor listening, you may be pastoring a congregation who's more influenced by, you know, certain podcasters or or online influencers than others and figuring out, you know, rather than just assuming, oh, everybody in my church likes this particular type of influencer, um, which it would maybe be easy to do. And you may be right to some extent, just trying to get to know people better and figuring out, yeah, who like specifically what podcasters, what um, YouTubers, what um, TV shows, you know, if you, if you have a congregation that's still watching TV regularly, like are there certain TV shows or commentators, you know, are your, are the people in your women's ministry overly influenced by Instagram influencers in the mom space because there are tons of those and I've learned about all of them since becoming a dad or are they more influenced by the ladies leading the view you know on TV every morning and that's going to affect how you pastor um, and that's going to affect how you have conversations about cultural issues or, or whatever else so I think just yeah studying your congregation like you know you're often told in premarital counseling if I can think back this far like you know study your spouse really get to know your spouse and and study how they work and what they like, what they don't like, how they process difficult situations. I think in the same way as somebody who's never been like a vocational pastor, but has been serving in the church and 
very pastoral ways, I suppose, for a long time, like study your congregation, figuring out, figure out who is influencing them because not all internet, not all social media influence is created equally and not all of it should be treated in the same way. So if you find that your church is being seriously led astray in some pretty uh, dire ways by some disinformation on the internet, that's something you might want to nip in the bud really quickly. Uh, but if you find that your church is, yeah, they, they follow these influencers, but they seem pretty germane. They don't, you know, they don't seem particularly terrible in one way or another, then, you know, that's not going to be a sort of dire, urgent situation that you need to address. Let me say this to pastors as well. Um, I've had a lot of conversations with pastors about policing online social media behavior. And I don't need to get into this too much because this would be a podcast episode in and of itself. But um, what your congregants do on social media matters. So there's a temptation among pastors, I've learned, to just turn a blind eye to whatever congregants do on social media. Um, and just like, you know, if, if John in your church, Deacon John, is just flying off the handle about some political issue, there's a serious temptation, even if you see it. A, there's a temptation to just like not see it at all and just like not be present so you don't have to look at it. B, there's a temptation to, if you see it, just be like, oh, that's just John being crazy, you know, just crazy old John just doing his thing. Um, but two things about that. One, social media is real life. So we should not, as church leaders in any capacity, treat what people do on social media as less weighty than what they do off of social media. So if you have some church member that's cussing out some politician or whatever else uh, online, you should treat that in the same way you would if they were doing that, like in front of you in person, uh, like that's there. It's not less real. It's just as real. The Lord cares about that action as much as he cares about what that person is doing offline. Secondly, um, if you have some idea pastor that, uh, yeah, I got some quarrelsome people online, but they're not, you know, they're well-behaved offline. Like they're not doing that stuff. They're not going to bring that here. They're not going to, that's wrong. If you have people who are super quarrelsome online, who are always causing a ruckus over one thing or another, and you find that this is a problem in your church on the internet, don't be surprised when it comes to you. Don't be surprised when you become the target of their uh, quarrelsomeness. Um, Because I have talked to a few pastors over the course of the last eight months to a year as I've been writing this next book who have seen that quarrelsomeness that's unrelated to the church at all jump off of the internet and away from whatever was happening on the internet uh, and, and have it be, have the arrow be pointed at the leaders of the church in one way or one way or the other. So I'm not saying, and this is a fine line to walk. I'm not saying that pastors need to be like policing social media activity at all times of all their parishioners. You would never get to pastor. Like you would, that's just impossible. But I think, Pastors, again, this kind of goes back to my core message, should maybe take a little bit more seriously and treat a little bit more realistically what their congregants are doing on social media, because sooner or later, it it will probably come actually to your to your local church. Well, I do want to wrap up with a question that in some ways you've answered. You've already said you use social media. You like social media. We're talking about how pastors should be aware uh, but I do want to just sort of put the question out there. Should we be using social media? Do you do you encourage people? I mean, one of the trends you see is people taking breaks from social media, people jumping off social media. People, uh, Do you have a, a sort of general advice on do you think it's it's worth it? And maybe this gets to our small bit of optimism to round out the show. Yeah. Um, first, I'm going to say something negative and then I'll say positive. Um. I think social media has been a net negative on us societally, very broadly speaking. Um, I think it, I I do think it maybe caused more harm than good. Um, That's really hard to measure. And people have all different kinds of opinions on this and plenty of people would disagree with me. Um, And that's fine. Uh, But I I do think it has and will have a, a pretty broad net negative, mainly because it's changed how we think. And that's really hard to measure, but I think it's, changed how we think in some pretty negative and and bad ways. Um, But I do, I do think social media is, uh, can be used and, and, and uh, I don't generally discourage people from using social media. I just encourage 
wise and intentional social media use. So I think there are two bad ways to engage with social media. Um, there's passive ignorance. Like I just don't know about this and I don't want to care about it, especially if you're in ministry, like you should have some level of knowledge about it. Like you should have some level of uh, familiarity. Um, I just think that's kind of important for ministry today to kind of just know how this stuff works and, and how it's affecting people. Um, so I think passive ignorance is unhealthy, but I also think uncritical embrace is unhealthy where you just embrace these social media platforms and share the funny videos and read the articles and never ask, what is this doing to me? So I think both of those, I guess you could call them different ends of a spectrum, uncritical embrace or passive ignorance are both unhealthy for different reasons. So I encourage like critical use, like use social media, but be very critical about it. And I don't mean negative. I just mean, think critically, um, use social media intentionally. Go into every social media platform if you're signing up for it for the first time or downloading the app on your phone, or if you have them all that you like to use now, which is probably the case. What do I want Facebook to accomplish in my life? Why do I have an Instagram account? What, what's my goal for using Instagram? What do I hope happens? Like, think about Chase, I mean, think about how silly this sounds, right? Like, who among us has ever asked, what do I hope Instagram accomplishes in my life? None what of us are is, asking what is, what that question. What is my question. goal opening Instagram right now? Yeah, in nobody this five asks these that questions. Yeah. Right. But like, if you're welcoming a new person into your life, you're kind of like, yeah, I love this person. And here's why I love this person. Here's why I love being in a relationship with this person. Well, you're spending more time with X social media platform, Instagram, Twitter, whatever, than you are with just about anyone in your life, except for your spouse, probably, if you're listening to this. So how... I, I'm just, that's one of the things that gets me really fired up, as I'm sure you can tell, is it's so crazy to me that we have such an intimate relationship with these platforms and we don't ask a simple question like, why am I using this? Like, what am I hoping it accomplishes? And frankly, I think that's why we end up with a lot of mental health issues and, and other misuses. So I think it's fine to use them. I don't think it's bad. I primarily use Twitter. Like, I don't super actively use anything else. And on Twitter, I've been very careful, especially over the last five years to unfollow anything that would ever make me mad. Um, like I don't follow any news organizations. I don't follow any like talking heads. I follow some thoughtful writers that I don't always agree with, but they, they're not like infuriating to me. I guess you could say that I might be like, ah, I don't really agree, but they're not like jerks, you know? Um, I follow a lot of baseball stuff cause I'm a baseball fan. I follow video game stuff. I follow social media columnists who are really thoughtful um, you know, I follow fun, funny people like comedians. So I try to, I'm like, I use Twitter to connect with thoughtful people and to be entertained. Like that's what I use it for. And then say, okay, if my goal for X social media for Twitter, in my case, is to use it to be entertained and connect with thoughtful people. Um, how does that impact the rest of my life? Like, how does that impact how I spend time in the word? How does that impact how I spend my free time with my family? Um, I think setting like limits on screen time or on using certain apps is really helpful. Like I have a thing on my phone, on my iPhone where I can't use any social media apps before seven o'clock in the morning or after nine o'clock at night. So like I'm, I'm making sure to set those limits. I think that's super healthy. So this is what I'm just trying. I'm not perfect at this, but I'm trying to describe a little bit of like using social media is not all bad, but I think we have to be really intentional about it and have some really clear parameters set up. Here's my, here's where I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic because young people, and I, by this, I mean like people under the age of 30, especially those who are like 25 and younger right now, you know, college age and younger, um, I think are feeling the brunt of the negativity of social media more than anybody. Like, I think they're feeling it more than just about anybody ever. Um, mental health is on serious decline among teenagers today, more than ever in the social media age, et cetera. So my hope, my optimism for the future is that when the people who are 17 and 22 right now get older, um, that they can maybe, and are making you know bigger decisions, can maybe affect some real change that those of us who have sort of grown up with this stuff have not had the foresight to affect and to implement. So where, you know, for you and I, this stuff is all new. It's fascinating. It's so exciting that we didn't ask a lot of the critical questions that should have been asked early enough. So we've created these platforms and it's kind of, like I said before, it's, it's kind of hard to unring the bell. It's kind of hard to go back and make all these changes now. Um, 
But my hope is for this upcoming sort of generation that they at, they've seen the sort of havoc that can be wrought by social media and that whatever future iterations of these platforms look like, whatever, you know, the metaverse and web three look like that they can ask some serious and hard questions about if these things are good overall and not get so caught up in the hype that they just adopt and embrace anything that comes along. I especially am optimistic for the, you know, the 17 year old girl who's a mom today and recognizes or not a mom today, but a mom in the future, the 17 year old girl today who sees how social media is negatively affecting her mental health. My hope is that she, when she's a parent, you know, in 10 years or so, uh, that she will be able to parent her child in such a way from a sort of lived experience to protect her child from experiencing that same sort of social trauma that social media caused in her life. I think for you and I, we're of such an age that like we might be okay at that. Our, our parents certainly weren't because they never had social media. You and I, at least me, I, I didn't really have like a smartphone when I was in high school. So I didn't have it nearly as hard as a lot of high schoolers do today. So I'm just, I'm optimistic in that. My hope is that young people, and I've had this experience talking with a lot of young people is that they have maybe a more sober view of social media and a less hype oriented um, in that that they're just a little bit more distanced and maybe do have a little bit more of a critical eye toward these platforms in such a way that we can prevent repeating a lot of the same problems that we're currently dealing with. So anyway, that's a kind of a long answer. Sorry, but it's complicated. You know, it's complicated. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. And the book, of course, we've been talking about terms of service. I recommend it for anybody to pick up. There's so much more. I feel like we scratched the surface of the book. Um, but also your um, your emails that you send out, the newsletter, what's the best way for people to be able to get those? I think those are really helpful for just, look, not every day you're sitting down and saying to yourself, how could I think more deeply about my social media use? So something like your newsletter is a good tool to just sort of force you to have those conversations, to think more deeply, to see beneath the surface like we're talking about. So what's the best way for people to follow you, get those newsletters as well? Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter at Chris Martin 17. Uh, the newsletter's right there in my bio. So you can click on it there, or you can find it terms of service.social. Uh, also, if you Google Chris Martin terms of service, probably both the book and the newsletter will come up. So uh, yeah, you can find it any of those ways, whatever is most uh, efficient for you. Well, Chris, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for the hard work you've been putting in. I know the book reflects a lot of years interacting with uh, your own social media use, others. You've been doing it to equip pastors. And uh, we have a lot yet to go, a lot yet to figure out, and probably plenty changing ahead. And I'm grateful for your perspectives along the way. Thanks, man. It was great to be here and uh, glad to chat. You can find show notes for today's episode by going to pastorwriter.com slash 79. There I've got a link to Chris's book as well as information about signing up for his newsletter if you're interested in it. The book and the newsletter both called Terms of Service. Uh, also, if you haven't had a chance to pick up The Five Masculine Instincts, I'd love for you to take a look. The book's been ranking really well and selling. And man, it's been so much fun just to see the book finally in people's hands. So if you haven't gotten a chance, the book is now out in print format, in digital format, and in audio format. So however you like books, you'll find it there. As always, thanks for listening. Till next time.